thank you for listening to this programme from the Forever Manchester Radio and Podcast Network. Forever Manchester is a charity that raises money to fund and support community activity across Greater Manchester. Check out forevermanchester.com to find out more. Forever Manchester, raising money to fund and support community activity across Greater Manchester. Get involved today. Search forevermanchester.com for happy days. With me now is Angela Matthews and Ian Wilde and this interview was actually originally set up to chat with Angela but we've incorporated Ian into the mix at the 11th hour can I say to the pair of you welcome to Forever Manchester Meets thank you for having us here okie dokie now I've just explained to Angela and Ian that I do very little in the way of research (laughs) into the guests that we talk to on the Forever Manchester Meets podcast Angela I am going to start with you Okay. And Ian, you're more than welcome to join in as we go along. He can fill in the gaps where my memory is gone. Yeah, fill in the gaps. Are you both Mancunians, Angela? No, I'm originally Welsh and I grew up in Raleigh, North Wales and I came here to do my degree. Thank God I arrived here. Yes, best thing I ever did was leave. And the best place that I ever went to as a kid was Rill. Really? I suppose it's okay till you're about 12 and then it's just over. It's just dreadful. I think it was called uh, Poverty on Sea in the Telegraph. How recently was that? About three years ago. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's a shame. It's a shame, of course. A beautiful uh, countryside surrounding it, but uh, no, there's not much going for kids in seaside areas, I don't think. It's a shame, isn't it? Unless they're into sports or nature. Yeah, but But I I didn't hang around with people who into if sport and nature. Cultural like yours, yeah. then it's not great place. No, no. So go on, youngster being brought up in Rill. Yeah, and then I uh, came to Manchester. I was just bored. I was constantly bored. Was your childhood a boring childhood? Um, yeah, I always wanted something else, but I didn't know what it was until I got glamour, here. Yeah, I wanted glamour. That was drama and glamour. Mm. I certainly got that. But uh, yeah, that was probably what I wanted. Yeah. Tell me about primary school, secondary school, education. Really? Yeah, go on. There is no education system in Wales, um, unless you're going to pay for it, I suppose. Some of the Welsh schools are okay. Um, having not been able to speak Welsh nor have any religion, I just went to a plain school. I got interested in clothes, boys, and makeup at the age of about about 12 so that was it I didn't actually have any education after the age of 12 or 13 although I did go in most days because um, I was disruptive being told to sit at the back of the class and just to pass the time away and then I left I, I was of the last year in the UK where you can still leave school at 15 so I left two weeks after my 15th birthday Okay. Um, and then I got into feminism when I was about 17 or 18 and I thought I'm going nowhere fast so um, I paid somebody to teach me how to read and write properly I used to come to the house um, I think I paid £4 an hour and seriously? yeah he asked me what I wanted to do and I said I don't know but I'd, I've heard of O-levels and I'd like some perhaps I could go to college but I don't think I'm clever enough and he said well having had conversation with you and that you are it's just nobody's ever taught you how so he said I'll get you through an English O-level so I did that and then he said why don't you apply to a college and do four O-levels so I did that then I stayed another year I did two A-levels and then they said you're quite capable of doing a degree so I came to Manchester and did a degree and then New Order Rob Gretton their manager paid for me to do my postgrad. How did you get involved with Rob Gretton? (laughs) 
You don't just arrive off the bus from real, do you? Oh, no, there was a lot in between then. You got off the bus and ran into Johnny Marvin. Yes, the first, Gow, the first person I spoke to when I, in the pouring rain, um, I'd arrived in Manchester and the course hadn't started yet. And uh, I was here for about a week, not knowing anybody, just living in Heaton, Mersey, I think. Just, just outside Stockport, the college had found me a room. And I was just bored and ended up in a place called X-Clothes. And uh, the shop assistant there was Johnny Marr. Yes, I got talking to him. And I will always remember that, the first person I spoke to in Manchester. Johnny Marr. Yeah, so he was the first person I spoke to. That wasn't the start of a love with music, though, was it? No, that had already started when I was in Wales and had started going to... When I started my O-levels, and that was meeting um, people from the area of Chester and North Wales area. And then Eric's was on in Liverpool, um, which is a punk club, and where all the Liverpool bands started. So I started going there. I'd always liked music, you know, I can remember the Supremes and my mum and dad were into rock and roll when I was a baby in the pram. So I've always loved music anyway, more popular music rather than classical music. And that just carried on. That's how I ended up coming to Manchester, really, because Factory Records had started about a year before. I think there'd been three or four Factory releases. What was your first job? And my first job was a hairdresser and my mum found me that job because I had a break from leaving school at 15 to uh, starting my degree when I was probably 22. Your mum must have been out of her mind. She still is now. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't fit in. I've got a card. She once sent me, it sent me and it just said, very difficult child to bring up. You didn't need any help with anything. So we're chatting to a free spirit. Yeah. Right. Free spirits are hard to control, aren't they? Yes. And hard to teach. (laughs) Yeah. They have to want to be controlled or be taught in order to teach them or control them, yeah. So, although you went to Eric's in Liverpool, and Liverpool yeah. seemed to be the, the natural extension of from Chester... Yeah, to do a degree in Manchester, they were offering higher grades... You know, if you got these grades you could get in there, Manchester must be better than Liverpool. Liverpool were offering quite low grades, so Manchester was the one to be. And what did you study? Um, I did sociology and art history, which, of course, is one of those arts degrees. I don't know what it counts for in the end. But then when I ended up being at the Hacienda, it was obvious there was 42 staff. I think it's about four million a year turnover then. Um, I needed more of a business head on me. So that's when they paid for me to do my postgraduate in business and management seen as no one else could do it so <laughs> eventually you arrived at the boardwalk whilst I was doing my degree I got elected as the social secretary it was called then uh, they didn't have an ENTS officer at that time so I was social secretary which meant after I finished my degree you spend a year as an elected student putting on gigs Um, and all the events so it was really good and what stood me in good stead was for the Freshers Ball I got the Pogues and it was only like an 800 venue and they were a huge band and I think they just wanted a warm up gig um, for when they got a tour so I was there for a year um, and during that year we were introduced by Bruce Mitchell from Durity Column he thought we'd get on I was not interested in how a gig actually, you know, the electrics and how the sound came out. So he put me in touch with Ian so that Ian would do that for me and I would do the things like organising the rest of it. Yeah. Bruce told me he'd set up a meeting for me with the new secretary at the poly. Don't talk to her about anything technical. <laughs> Whatever she wants, just make it work. Here is a woman not to be messed with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, absolutely. Correct, yeah. So that was that. So, right, so I'm picking up that obviously somebody's setting the ways here. So that would have been 1986. 
Okay. But you're only allowed to do that for a year because you're elected by the students. Okay. What I'm trying to get to here yeah. is you've obviously got a vision going on in your, in your head. The rest of the world might not be quite <laughs> in tune with it. I don't know what my vision was. I really just wanted to work in the music business, but it was really hard because I had to start looking for a job that year when I was social secretary. And I thought, I'll be an agent, um, you know, an agent for bands, so a band needs a gig, so I'd be booking the tours for them. In my head, that's what I was going to be doing. But the reality was, the agents I got to know, because as a promoter, social secretary putting gigs on, the agents were speaking to me. So I just thought it'd be dead easy because they knew I was good, you know, I was good at it. sell out gigs for them nothing ever went wrong but when I phoned up to work for them uh, they were saying well there's you know in the office or a typist there was no female agent so uh, I was a bit stuck so I ended up coming to the boardwalk you had a lot of help from Elliot Rashman Elliot Rashman yeah so the feminist was being yeah Yes, Absolutely. yeah. But it, Which you must could, have really angered you. Yeah, but you couldn't really articulate it because we have all the words for it now, but we didn't really... It was just the way then, the world yeah, it was, then, yeah. It, it was luck, I suppose, if you got it. So you've just mentioned Mick Hucknall yeah. and Elliot Rash. Because they, they had been involved in the Polytechnic before and kind of got there. Yeah. Ian, you've got to bear with me now. Yeah. So this is somebody that's jumped off the bus from Rill, <laughs> bumps into Johnny Marr, <laughs> And then in the next breath, we're talking about it's, Elliot it's, Rasmund it's, and... Actually, yeah, it's quite Hulman. incredible it's now it's, I think yeah. about it. Right, so in Loving Music when I was a student, I'm thinking, oh, I could be social secretary here when I finish my degree. I best start learning back of house what's going on behind there, who's putting the gigs on. Right. The person who was the ENTS officer at the time was Elliot Rashman who was managing an unknown band who hadn't been signed called Simply Red fronted by Mick Hucknall, who I'd actually seen play Eric's when he was Frantic Elevators. Yeah. So I went to see Elliot Rashman and said, I would like to be social secretary here. And so I just would like to know every aspect of how you put gigs on, how the disco works, etc., etc. So was that a cop-out or a cop-in? How Were you, you copping out of the course? To, no, no, I carried on, on my degree. When I said, say, I would like to listen work for you, I meant as well as doing my degree, you know, at weekends and that. So he just said, yeah, you got a job. So I'd do the cloakroom for him. There was all sorts of things You're you know, backstage. Worker, I am a very hard worker. I can, I can work, and work long, long hours. Um, and so the only thing I didn't do was I never did crewing. I don't know why, probably, because no girls ever did it. Jane from New Order was the first was one I knew, few. as in moving all the equipment. Ian yeah. was brought in to do that, though, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, you were doing the sound in that, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. So uh, that's how I learned how to do it, and I was elected, yeah. So the sub-education that was going on... Was more interesting than the real education, I suppose, or the formal education, yeah. So you suddenly had the knowledge of how to run a gig? Yes. And how to promote a gig? Yes. And how to deal with management? Yep. And how to book bands? Yes. And how to put them on? Yep. And how the night would run? Yep. And it was something yeah, it was that you just learned through yeah. a love of and a, de- and a, a desire oh, I, yes, to be involved Oh, yes, I really in. just loved it. It wasn't really like work. and I just found it a very easy thing to do as well. Um, and I ended up at the boardwalk. How did I end up at the boardwalk? Oh, I, I went to live in Leicester then. That was it. I got a job as an ENTS officer straight after the poly as ENTS officer there. And I absolutely hated it. And that's the, the reason you went? 
Yeah, just for the job. God, it was awful. It was just Middle England. There was nobody like the Mancunians I'd met. There was no Johnny Marr. There was no, no Johnny Marr. Mick Hucknall there. There was absolutely nothing. I mean, what's the chances there? The only person that you've got any likelihood of getting <laughs> off the bus there is Gary Lineker, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. I've never had an interest in football. So I came back at the end of the college year, yeah, as Gary Glitter was on. It was in the venue downstairs. I just thought, sod this. I'm getting back to Manchester. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I just handed in my resignation so the next morning. Yeah, so I'd got no nothing work, or something. nothing. Um, the boardwalk was going strong. I'd, I'd been coming back to Manchester a, week, a lot of weekends that I could. And so the boardwalk was open seven nights a week, I think. And they wanted the manager to have a night off. So they employed me freelance to do one or two nights a week so the manager could have time off. So that's how I ended up here. Then I would uh, put the occasional gig on here. I didn't put anybody big on. Because we're sitting in what used to be Because we're sitting in what used to be the boardwalk, yeah. We certainly are. From that, I started thinking, why is everybody from the Hacienda coming in and standing in corners staring at me? Well, they were looking for a manager for the Hacienda because they were opening Dry Bar and they wanted a manager at the house. And they had heard about me. Well, of course, you would hear about me because I was still the only girl doing anything like that at the time. And so then I just was asked, would I go and have a meeting? And the most ridiculous thing was, I thought at the time, do I really want to work at the Hacienda? Do I want to have to look after bars and buy beer and things? And I nearly didn't take the job. And then I didn't hear from them. And I phoned up one day and said, what happened about that interview, that meeting we had? It was like, oh, yeah, we were wondering when you were going to start. So I said, they said, you've got the job. So that was it. I started at the Hacienda. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah. Because both the boardwalk and the Hacienda have become badges now, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, But at the time it was happening, there was no surety about anything, was no, there? No, there wasn't, no. And also, I wasn't going to the Hacienda to be the promoter. Paul Combs was doing that at the time. I eventually ended up doing that as well as managing the club. Uh, they wanted somebody who was in the club at night running it, but also it involved buying all the drink and the beer and sorting out all the bar stuff. I had absolutely no experience of that. Oh. I, I, when I said that to Tony, he just said, yeah, but we pick for the person, really, and we know you fit in. We're family. We just choose our family. So that was that. Another thing about start the Hacienda in those days, like you say, there's no, you never know what might happen next, and it's not a reliable thing. It was incredibly impressive because it was so big, and it was such a lot of investment had gone into it. It was yeah. something that wasn't mainstream. It wasn't dis- you know, in those early days, it was gigs and happenings and theatrical things. And it was quite impressive that anyone would sink such a huge investment and actually make such a huge night. We'd never seen a nightclub that was big. We'd only seen a nightclub that was like 200 or 300 people, you know. So it was... It was was a beautiful, beautiful building. You were getting involved in something that you knew was something important, even though you didn't know in what way. And it was just about six months after it had all happened. Summer Summer of Love had started. You know, Mike Pickering was uh, the main DJ and it was just really going off. The queues around the block had started and everything. And and were you on board by then, yeah? Yeah, I was on board by then. And also I'd been a customer there anyway. And you'd worked in the bar And I'd worked in the bar when I'd been a student. When it was like uh, they only put indie bands on before house music, I'd also been there behind the bar. So let's get this... In some sort of perspective. Yeah, it's all jumbled up, really. The Hacienda was, at one point, the world's most famous nightclub. Yes. And you were the manager of it. And the licensee. I was the first woman in the UK to hold a licence for a venue that size, yes. And we think that I was probably the first woman to be the manager of a venue that size as well. 
Right, so, okay, so you went in as almost like the general manager, i.e. The, like the landlord. Yes, of course, the landlord, yeah. And, and then, and then like moved that. on to be all sorts of other things besides including the promoter and the booker. Well, when uh, Paul Cons went, yeah, because he didn't book bands then, it was all DJs. Occasionally we'd have a gig yeah, night. I remember name. some great gig nights, yeah. you know, like Mantronics and the Residence. Yes. If you had one memory yeah. of the Hacienda, what is it? Oh, there's just so many. I just don't, I can't pick one. I just don't know. I always talk about the money that burnt, but there's also standing with Tony in the DJ box and he said, we're making history here. You should be very proud to be part of this. And there's also, you know, there's lots of things. And then it kicks off these bad memories with gang stuff, which I never talk about because I don't like to... Uh, sometimes that sort of thing is glamorised, I think, in Manchester, and I don't like that. So there's just so much, so many things happened. You know, Vivian Westwood, I worked for, in one of her shops for 10 years later on afterwards. Um, so she came, so I was able to sit and have a drink with her. She hated house music. Um, she couldn't even get how uh, uh, a DJ would work with two decks. Well, of course, now some of them work with three or four. Just greedy. Um, yeah. So there was, there was lots of interesting things that would happen, and, you know, there was always stuff going off. Yeah, it was good. So what happened after the Hacienda? Oh, God, I couldn't get work. So <laughs> it was really hard to get work. I suppose we'd all got a bad name, and there was a lot of us who couldn't get work afterwards. So I thought the easiest thing to do was go to London if you're looking for work. And I ended up working for corporates and that. And I went through a really bad patch where I hated what I was doing, but I wouldn't give in, so I stayed in London. And then in the end, it was just I have got to get back. So came back to Manchester um, and then just did... You know, uh, temping work. I ended up in quite a nice company, an engineering company in Salford, with about 12 guys. That that was, he was an entrepreneur, an independent, um, Charles King. And I just think, you know, that made me start thinking, yeah, I only like working for independent people. I do not like working for corporates. I hate the thought that you're making money and, you know, you're having your bit of it and the other bit's going somewhere else. But where is that bit going if it's a corporate? That's what I don't like. But you missed being in the city centre yeah, yeah. knowing what was going yeah. on. And then, of course, Hockey was writing his book. He said, do you want to come to the house and we'll just chat and see what comes off it towards the book? So I thought, well, yeah, I'll be doing that in the daytime. So that's, I left the engineering company, so I was with him for a couple of months. Um, Hockey, that's Peter Hook from New Order. That was a short stay then. <laughs> well, it was just helping him, really. It wasn't a job. <laughs> Um, it was just us but two bailed, chatting. But it bailed you out of the world that you weren't quite <laughs> yes. comfy with. Oh, and then we went away, didn't we? We went away for about three months in a camper van to France. And I said, I'd best get some sort of job. Let me do a list of where I'd like to work. Well, it wasn't and, a very long list, No, I phoned up Vivian Westwood and uh, they said start tomorrow. So that was that. Well, you had had lunch with the woman. <laughs> I suppose you played this card, did you? Yes. I was there for about 10 years in King Street and then Bridge Street I worked in as well and they were at Trafford Centre so I ended up the part-time member of staff who held the keys for all the three businesses in the northwest? And then Ian and I had started a company together, Fire Station Square Pottery. Ian makes the pottery. It's all made at our house. And that was getting busier and busier. We were only doing Manchester Christmas markets. Right. And then that was a weird way to live for Ian because you get your money in December, really. But you the, just have six yeah. weeks trading and, and you, then, you, work, you work all year for this six yeah. weeks. Yeah. And then we kept hearing about altering a market, didn't we? Yeah. So we phoned uh, Jenny Thompson up, who owns it and 
that was it. Life-changing. Ended up with there five days a week now. And I packed in working at Vivian in Westwood. Sense, why was it life-changing? Well, because I'd never thought I'd be on a market stall five days a week selling pottery. But then as soon as I arrived there, there were so many people from the Hacienda, wasn't there? It was weird. Trevor is there, for example, regularly. Liz is there regularly. Jenny used to Alison own Atlas there. Bar. So it's almost like going home. But, yeah, it was life-changing because of packing and work at um, Vivian Westwood, yeah. So tell me about the pottery. Ian. Okay. Well, I worked as a sound engineer. That was, that was my trade, really. Um, and I started travelling around the world, first with a group from Liverpool called Shack, and then after that, uh, or not after that, simultaneously I was doing the Stone Roses, as well as running my own equipment company. I was doing the sound for these different things. And anyway, the Roses was the one that took off. But they got to a point where they'd done the first album and they'd done Spike Island. And at that point, they sued their record company to get out of the original contract. So they had injunctions against them that made it difficult to work. After that, they sued their management and another lot of injunctions. And the upshot of it was that they didn't work for four years. So during that time, I sort of did a course in uh, ceramics and pottery because it was just something I'd fancied. And uh, so over the years, I just became better and better at it until we could start selling it. And uh, it's just gone on from there, hasn't it? Yeah. To describe altering a market is, uh, you've probably seen it on the news, it's uh, it's re- rejuvenated the whole area. It's in the market hall, they've got food. Um, it's a food hall with different... They're not food traders, they're restaurateurs, really, it's aren't they? Yeah, it's they're restaurateurs, restaurateurs. But it's all very relaxed, casual dining. And then outside in the market area where we are, it's all people like us who are handmakers or curate various items. There's you know, a couple of people who uh, are tailors who make yeah. clothes, there are shoemakers. It's, it's, uh, so does the whole artisan scene of this? Right, yeah. yes. That's so that's exactly. what I was going to say. So obviously the pottery at first it's it's stoneware the clay's from stoke and ian does functional work rather than arty stuff so it's a dinner service for example they cost a lot of money obviously because they're handmade and the mugs are very popular and what happened in the past 10 years is all the artisan hipster movement happened where they like craft and they like real things and we were there selling exactly what they wanted and so yeah so we've gone from real yeah yeah to the boardwalk, yeah. To the hacienda, yeah. To Vivian Westwood, yeah. To Altrincham Market, yes. It's been great, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say it's a journey, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. is. <laughs> Have you brought something to Altrincham Market? You're obviously brilliant at it. I guess if you think of a, an old-style market as being quite a masculine, yeah, it's not like that thing, at all. This is quite different. Yeah, That's you've also been doing talks and things, haven't you? Connected with the yeah. Film. Well, I used to think it was a bit. I don't know. I've always thought about you should always move forward and see what's new and move on and not live in the past. Um, and people kept asking me about the Hacienda, like, much like we're doing today. And I used to think, oh, I just want to talk about the Hacienda all the time. And then I would, wouldn't do anything. But then my mindset changed about that, didn't I? I started thinking, hang on a minute, this was a really important thing culturally 
to the whole country, really. And you were involved. And also, I should be really proud of what I did. Mm -hmm. So now, speak to anybody about it. About it. So, yeah. And then the film came out, Do You Own the Dance Floor, by Chris Hughes, uh, directed it. It's a fantastic film, isn't it? So I've been doing question and answer sessions for him with... Graham Park seems to be the person I'm doing it with the most, who was a DJ at the Hacienda. He's still DJs now. So there's been quite a lot of things, hasn't there, going on? Yeah, Graham does yeah. the Hacienda classical thing. Yeah. So it's it's the, there's a whole revival now about the Hacienda. Do you do any it's gone bigger. Speaking? No, but or perhaps I should. I'm or? not good to just sudden. I don't. I'm not very good at starting to talk and talking for half an hour. But if I'm asked the questions, oh, I don't know. you're not doing bad. <laughs> if I'm asked the questions, then I will. Yes. I'm winking and everything. <laughs> Listen, you've been a lovely person today. Thank you, thank you. And Ian, it's been a pleasure to have you on board thank as well. Thank you very much. Can I wish you every success for the future? Thank you very much. I hope you sell yes. loads of mugs. <laughs> yeah, come on. We do. <laughs> I'd like yes. to commission you to make me a mug personally. Yes, okay. a forever Manchester mug. And I will come and, and I will drink my tea out of it forevermore. <laughs> okay. <Good>. And um, <laughs> thank you very much for having a chat on Forever Manchester Meets. Okay, thank, thank you. you, Terry. For happy days... For amazing ways. For people who care. For people who dare. For great opportunities. For amazing communities. For a hand up, not a handout. For you. For me. For everybody. Forever Manchester. Let's do something extraordinary. Join the movement. ForeverManchester.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Forever Manchester Meets, please go to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and like and subscribe us with a nice five-star review. If you want to find out more about Forever Manchester and the work that we do in Greater Manchester, please check us out at forevermanchester.com or follow us on the usual social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are at Forever Manchester. Nice one.